Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Will Donald J. Trump versus the United States of America end up before the U.S. Supreme Court? The lead starts right now. The question of the hour, will the U.S. Justice Department appeal in the Trump Mar-a-Lago case as a Trump-appointed judge sides with the former president and cuts off access to classified documents for prosecutors while a special master is given time to review the material? Plus, mounting calls for a separate investigation after immigrants are hoodwinked, promised shelter and jobs only to end up at Martha's Vineyard because of a Republican governor's immigration protest stunt. How volunteers have come to the migrants' rescue. And the CEO of FedEx delivering a dire warning about the economy with his company on the front line of the supply chain crisis. Welcome to The Lead, I'm Jake Tapper, and we're going to start with that CEO's gut punch in our money lead today. The head of FedEx warning, not only does he think the United States is headed for a recession, but business, he says, is starting to slow around the world. That message created a lot of anxiety on Wall Street today. FedEx stock tumbled. The Dow is closing this hour after spending a day in the red. Let's bring in CNN's Allison Kosick. Allison, we often come to you at the top of the show when the markets are either substantially up or massively down. But this time, it's this comment from FedEx that is getting the world's attention. Yeah, and FedEx's CEO, Jake, was pretty direct about where he thinks the economy is going. In a CNBC interview yesterday, when he actually blindsided investors, he gave a pretty ominous warning that he thinks the slowdown in his business shows we're on a path towards a worldwide recession. And FedEx believes things will only get worse as we head toward the end of the year. In a pre-earnings announcement, FedEx said it missed revenue targets by a half billion dollars. Research analyst Ken Hexter with Bank of America told me that FedEx's announcement shows that the U.S. economy is decelerating and is just one more example of the drumbeat getting louder and louder about where the economy is headed. Hexter says other companies over the past few months, they've noticed a slowdown in the economy too, like Walmart and Target indicating they have too much inventory and Amazon closing warehouses because they overbuilt. So FedEx is just another canary in the coal mine. We saw this cause a major frenzy here on Wall Street today where the market was pretty volatile because FedEx is seen as a barometer for the bigger economy. And the thinking is, if it's doing poorly, then what does that mean for the economy as a whole? Though, Jake, it is important to point out the other part of FedEx's week um, pre-earnings announcement is self-inflicted. FedEx says it lost share in Europe and in the U.S. It's got a contractor issue. Jake? And this, this drop came after FedEx said it will be implementing cost-cutting initiatives as the outlook for the global economy worsens. Why? Is the warning from this one company so important? 
Yeah, first I want to point out these cost-cutting measures because FedEx is actually going to park some of their cargo planes. They're going to close some offices. There's a hiring freeze. The company's going to cut worker hours. All of this happening as the company dramatically and quickly tries to reverse all of this. And you put it out this warning. This warning is so important because FedEx is a global shipping giant. It's an economic bellwether or a leading indicator of how businesses are doing, so if they're healthy or not. FedEx's business activity, it's sensitive to overall economic, economic activity and basically provides information about the state of the U.S. economy. Jake? All right, Allison Kosick, thank you so much. Turning to our politics lead and another legal victory for Donald Trump, a federal judge has selected the person who will review the material the FBI sees from Mar-a-Lago, and it is a man originally put forward by Trump's legal team. Judge Eileen Cannon appointed Raymond Deary. He's a senior judge from New York, to review the documents taken from Trump's Florida resort. And he's been given more time than the Justice Department would like until November 30th to complete his review. Judge Cannon also rejected the Justice Department's bid to resume its criminal investigation into those classified documents. And as CNN's Jessica Schneider reports for us now, this could set up a legal fight that could reach all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Former President Donald Trump's lawyers doing a victory lap. It was a major win. Celebrating a judge's decision to name a special master to sort through more than 11,000 documents the FBI seized from Trump's Florida estate. The stage now set for a legal showdown with the Justice Department, which is expected to appeal. On appeal, uh, the 11th Circuit will look at what power did Judge Cannon have to undertake this remarkable and extraordinary step, which is to introduce a third party, this special master, into a type of situation where we rarely ever see them. Judge Eileen Cannon, a Trump appointee, standing by her decision to put the DOJ's criminal investigation into classified documents found at Mar-a-Lago on hold. I'm not surprised that Judge Cannon did this because the Justice Department was basically asking her to reverse much of her decision. And rejecting DOJ's argument that national security is at risk as a result of her order pausing the review of documents, writing, the court does not find it appropriate to accept the government's conclusions on these important and disputed issues without further review by a neutral third party. She is saying, I don't trust you that they're actually classified. Who do I trust? A designee of the court, a special master who's going to determine more than the executive branch, which handles classification issues, what is classified and what isn't. It actually does have an impact on intelligence collection. It has an impact on national security. Cannon giving Brooklyn-based judge and Reagan appointee Raymond Deary, now special master in this case, until the end of November, after the midterm elections, to conclude his review, delaying the criminal probe six weeks longer than DOJ had wanted. They delayed it till November 30th. Sorry about that, guys, but you shouldn't have been so far-reaching. Cannon also ordering Trump to pay the costs rather than split it 50-50 with the DOJ. As for Trump, he said Thursday, even if he were indicted, that wouldn't prohibit him from running for president again. And he issued this warning. You'd have problems in this country, the likes of which perhaps we've never seen before. I don't think the people of the United States would stand for it. And those words from Trump really reminiscent of the tone he took just before the Capitol attack. Now, Jake, as for those court proceedings, the special master actually has to work pretty quickly here. Within the next 10 days, he has to confer with Trump's team as well as DOJ prosecutors to come up with a review schedule. And Judge Cannon also indicated in this order that he must prioritize reviewing those 100 classified documents. And after he does that, there's that potential that DOJ can once again resume using them in their investigation. 
But regardless here, I mean, this is going to be a relatively quick process. This entire review of these 11,000 documents need to be complete by the end of November, Jake. All right, Jessica Schneider, thanks so much. Joining us now, January 6th committee member, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California. Congresswoman, do you think that the Justice Department should appeal this ruling by Judge Cannon? Well, I don't know, Jake. I mean, that's up to them. I do think, speaking not as a January 6th member, but just as a lawyer and Judiciary Committee member, that the decision is not in the mainstream. And the question is, should they appeal it? That's a question about timing as well as precedent. But, you know, the classification of documents is thoroughly vested in the executive branch, not in the judicial branch. So this is kind of out there. Um, but they've got to make strategic decisions that, you know, I'm not going to second guess. Uh, earlier this week, I interviewed former U.S. attorney Jeff Berman, who said that this is a very serious case, uh, an obstruction of justice. The attempt of the Justice Department to get these documents back cannot be just shunted away, uh, as lo- a lot of the president's defenders have attempted. We just learned a few minutes ago, the Washington Post is reporting that months before these classified documents were found at Mar-a-Lago, Trump's lawyers were telling the National Archives that the only thing Trump had at Mar-a-Lago were 12 boxes of news clippings, not the hundreds of classified records that were eventually found down there. I mean, I guess it's not a shock that some members of the Trump team would lie, but what's your reaction? Well, that's a shocking report. And uh, the question is, you know, did... uh, the ex-president's lawyers lie for him or were they lied to and then did they represent those lies as true? Um, Either way, I think they're in big trouble. Uh, Once again, uh, lawyers that uh, become involved with the ex-president end up in legal trouble themselves. Uh, Obviously, what they represented was not correct. Uh, The ex-president himself is now talking about the classified documents that he had, uh, claiming somehow that he had a magic wand where he verbally declassified them. So uh, obviously what was represented to the department was false. The chairman of the January 6th committee, Benny Thompson, told CNN that the goal is to hold the January 6th committee's next hearing on September 28th. What should we expect to learn? Do you have new testimony, new witnesses, any shocking new information? Well, as you know, Jake, the rules don't allow me to go into the evidence, but we've been working throughout the summer. We do have new information. We have had additional witnesses. So, uh, you know, it's not for me to say what's blockbusting, but I do think we will have useful information to present to the public. And of course, we're also working on our recommendations for uh, changes in the law, changes in procedure, that would make our country safer, uh, as well as putting together the report that we will be issuing before the end of the year. I know your committee is also debating whether or not to ask extending formal invitations to Donald Trump or Mike Pence to formally appear before the committee. It seems pretty clear that Trump is a no, uh, but former Vice President Pence has not ruled it out, at least publicly. Um, So why have you not yet made that request? Well, there have been discussions underway Um, I will say this, that the former vice president said publicly that he was, you know, open to the idea. Then he, that was sort of later walked back. We're cognizant 
that if we uh, were to issue subpoenas that were resisted, uh, that would that legal fight would extend beyond the end of the year, which is, you know, select committees last only for the duration of the Congress. So we've got to make an assessment of where our uh, energy is best uh, placed. Given the former president's comments about the committee, I would guess it's unlikely that he would come in to talk to us, although if he were to volunteer to do so, we would welcome him. Speaking of Donald Trump's comments, take a listen to something that the former president told Hugh Hewitt about what might happen if he were ultimately indicted. If it happened, I think you'd have problems in this country, the likes of which perhaps we've never seen before. I don't think the people of the United States would stand for it. What kind of problems, Mr. President? I think they'd have big problems, big problems. How do you interpret those remarks? Well, they're concerning. They remind me of the comments made leading up to the riot on January 6th. I'm sure the ex-president is well aware the impact his words have on those who are um, adherents to to him. Um, I've noticed that on his webpage, he is increasingly uh, re-quoting and uh, re-posting things from QAnon. Uh, So I think I I worry and I would guess he understands that this could incite individuals to violence. And I would hope that he would curb uh, those types of comments. Certainly he's aware what his comments led to on January 6th. There's some evidence that it was actually his desired outcome. Uh, So let's hope that that's a desired outcome this time. Uh, the January 6th committee told the federal judge this week that you need an additional 3,200 pages of emails from Trump lawyer John Eastman, one of the people that came up with some of the grand conspiracies to steal the election. You need those documents so you can finish your report by the end of the year. Um, so, uh, you know, just to remind our people, Eastman specifically pushed the idea that Mike Pence could stop Congress's certification of Joe Biden's win, which he could not. What else do you need to, to finish this report in the next two and a half months? Well, we we would like that. Uh, We need, I mean, we've gotten a huge amount of information from the Secret Service finally, and the staff is is just, I mean, it's such a huge amount. We need to go through that. There's additional information we would very much like uh, from Mr. Meadows. As you know, he has defied us, uh, but now appears to be at least giving the Department of Justice what he gave to us. We're hoping that if he gives additional information, we should also get that. He is clearly a key figure in this entire plot. Uh, we have other asks out that, as you know, we're not at liberty to disclose until the committee votes. Uh, but we have a huge amount of information right now and uh, a little bit more that we'd like. All right, Democratic Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren of California, thanks so much. I'm going to take a deeper dive into Donald Trump and his allies' attempt to overturn the 2020 election in a brand new CNN special report. Uh, One of the people I sat down with is Arizona House Speaker Rusty Bowers. Bowers detailed the phone call that he got from Trump and Rudy Giuliani in their attempts to throw out Arizona's legitimate election results. We're in my office. This is the Speaker's office. It's not every day a state house politician gets a call from a U.S. president. But that's what happened to Arizona Speaker Republican Rusty Bowers after the 2020 election. Came home from church. My wife and I were sitting in the driveway. The White House 
popped up on his screen. So I take the call and Donetta steps out, goes in the house. I sat there in my little Prius and had a chat with the president with bad phone reception and backed out in front of the house where I get better reception. Rudy Giuliani was on the line too. And Bowers says it was Giuliani who began making crazy claims about voter fraud in Arizona. I can't give you the exact numbers, but I'll throw out numbers, but I'm, they're kind of of the audacious numbers. <laughs> like 200,000 illegal aliens voted, 6,000 military ballots were stolen and used. Bowers says Giuliani wanted him to hold an official Arizona House hearing to air these claims publicly. And then I said, but what's the whole purpose of this? What are you trying to achieve? And they said, well, we've heard that there's an arcane law in Arizona that if you have sufficient cause that you can throw out the Biden electors and put in Trump electors. And I said, that's a new one to me. I have never, ever heard of that. And so now you're asking me to do something that's against my oath. And uh, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Hear from other voices telling their versions of what went down. Don't miss American Coup, the January 6th investigation. That's Sunday night at 9 o'clock Eastern here on CNN and only here on CNN. Coming up next, immigrants from Texas used as political pawns, critics say. Ron DeSantis is not the only Republican governor trying to get attention with this kind of tactic. Now the White House may respond. Plus, she was arrested in Iran, accused of breaking the country's severe head cover rules for women. Two hours later, she was dead. The outrage and questions for the Iranian regime as new video of the incident emerges. Stay with us. In our national lead today, the migrants who had been shipped to Martha's Vineyard on planes by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis arrived at a military base on Massachusetts Cape Cod, where they will be given shelter. This comes as we're learning more about how that group of immigrants ended up on that island. CNN reporting that DeSantis essentially hoodwinked the group uh, by having individuals lure the migrants onto planes with false promises of jobs in New York or Boston. CNN's Miguel Marquez is on Martha's Vineyard as one Massachusetts prosecutor is calling for the Justice Department to now get involved. After less than 48 unexpected hours in Martha's Vineyard, nearly 50 Venezuelan migrants were given a warm send-off. Volunteers embracing each person as they boarded buses. Then ferries and onto the next part of their long journey. Their unannounced arrival Wednesday, all part of a campaign by Texas Governor Greg Abbott and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to send migrants to so-called sanctuary cities by surprise. All we're trying to do is offer transport to sanctuary jurisdictions uh, free to the, to the alien, uh, but certainly not mandatory. And that way they're able to go and these sanctuary jurisdictions can put their money where their mouth is. These immigrants were picked up in Texas. Some of them say they were taken to a hotel to wait, then boarded planes. Well, we didn't know until the last minute our destinations, such as New York, where our relatives reside, he says. We came with, as I say, the idea of reuniting with them. Yang Pablo Mora and other immigrants we spoke to here say they were promised all sorts of things, including jobs and housing things that never materialized. 
We were told it was humanitarian aid by a foundation that, in this case, remains unknown, he says. They didn't tell us the benefactor. They just told us that the person wanted to help us. While volunteers and officials in Martha's Vineyard promptly responded and cared for their unexpected guests, lawyers assisting the immigrants say the stop did nothing but detour already desperate people. It is sickeningly cruel, throwing obstacles in the way of people fleeing violence and oppression, some of whom walked through 10 countries in the hopes of finding safety. It is shameful and inhuman. The incident, which Governor DeSantis proudly took credit for, slammed by some Massachusetts officials. If this were about sort of alleviating capacity in border towns or in helping migrants seeking a better life, you know, you don't do it um, by by essentially a surprise unannounced transport, right? You guys obviously stepped up, but how much more complicated was it because they were sent here? My heart breaks for them because they were not the first priority. I hope they feel exceptionally loved. They're in my heart forever. I don't know what else to say. Now, look, uh, the bottom line here, Jake, is that there was no panic, there was no chaos, there was no fear here on Martha's Vineyard. Places like this can certainly handle 50 migrants. But the bottom line for them is that this really complicated their situation. Many of those migrants we spoke to, they are obviously applying for political asylum. They have meetings with immigration officials in California and in Washington State and in in Cincinnati and back in Texas in the days to come. They're now going to have to figure out that extra step and how they get themselves legal here, which everybody wants uh, here in the U.S. So this trip, the side trip, really complicated things. Jake? Yeah, and just a reminder, these are Venezuelans fleeing Marxism. Uh, Miguel Marquez, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Florida and Texas appear to be ramping up political stunts like, the, like those uh, related to immigration uh, ahead of the midterms. Today, Biden administration officials met to discuss how to respond to Republican governors who are sending migrants north. CNN's Caitlin Collins is at the White House. Caitlin, this meeting had been on the books before the public moves from Governors DeSantis of Florida and Abbott of Texas. Uh, But there now seems to be an increased urgency to come up with some sort of response. Yeah, Jake, the White House has been very clear and adamant in saying that this was a meeting that was scheduled before this actually happened, before these flights went to Martha's Vineyard, before some of these busing incidents were happening with these Republican governors. But obviously, you know, this certainly adds a twist to that meeting because what they need to discuss is coordinating the administration's response to this, as you've seen how they've handled it. Immigration has always been a challenge for this administration. You've seen the overcrowding at the border. You've seen the issues with asylum seekers. That's something that they've been dealing with, you know, ever since Joe Biden took office and that past presidents obviously have also dealt with. But this is a different aspect of it. And they have been harshly critical of these Republican governors moving these migrants to these places, whether it be via bus or by plane. They've said it's abhorrent. They have said it is inhumane. Karine Jean-Pierre, the press secretary earlier today, going on an extended um, thing about this, Jake, basically saying that they believe they are using these migrants as political pawns. And, uh, and Caitlin, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom is asking the Justice Department to investigate whether these migrants were lured to Massachusetts under false pretenses, which is what many of the migrants are telling journalists. Uh, I don't know the legality of all this, but could, they, could there be possible criminal or civil violations here? 
I don't think there's enough information known to really make an educated statement on whether or not, yes, that is going to happen or no, it's not. I think there are a lot of questions about what these migrants signed, what they were told. You know, that is not a question just that uh, Governor Newsom has raised. You've seen other governors raise it as well, including Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker after Governor Abbott in Texas sent migrants to Chicago. The question that they've been raising is, you know, were these people misled? Were they transported illegally? Because, of course, they were were not told where they were going. Those have been the questions that they've raised. Newsom has asked the Justice Department to investigate. The Justice Department, Jake, I'll tell you right now, is not weighing in. And the White House is referring things to the Justice Department. But certainly you see the argument that he's making there. You also have to keep in mind, Jake, the political aspect of all of this. Certainly that is what's fueling uh, Governor DeSantis and Governor Newsom is potentially going to be uh, a 2024 candidate for the presidential race, Jake. That's right. Caitlin Collins, we'll see you again in the next hour coming up. Russians may have been chased out of some areas of Ukraine, but what they left behind is nothing less than atrocious. The grim discoveries found in the town of Izium that our team could smell from far away. That's next. The world is telling Vladimir Putin to stop, but he is not listening. At a rare summit of leaders, Indian Prime Minister Modi told Putin face-to-face, now is not the time for war. But Putin insists there's no need for him to change the direction of his brutal campaign. And now more of Russia's horrors have been unearthed in the recently liberated Ukrainian town of Izium. More than 400 civilians were found in a mass grave sites with signs of torture on their bodies, according to Ukraine. CNN's Nick Peyton Walsh takes us there now. Here is where the horror gets names and numbers. Russia's unprovoked invasion killed many who knew But only now, in liberated cities like Izium, are we finding out who and how. And even this rain cannot erase the smell, how death haunts these pines. It's important to point out that this was a military position. These are tank positions around the city, presumably for the Russians when they occupied it. Burying these bodies where their troops would later rest and defend the city. Ukrainian officials have said over 400 bodies were buried here, even children, all showing signs of a violent death. Through the day, they have been exhuming dozens of bodies. Most individual graves, numbered and orderly, one bearing a number as high as 398. But this, we are told, and can smell and see, is a mass grave where 17 dead were found, a policeman here told us. Ukrainian officials said bodies found included a family killed in an airstrike, Ukrainian soldiers shot with their hands bound and bodies showing signs of torture. Some of the graves are marked just by a number and others have someone's full history. uh, Zolotarev Alexei Afanasyevich who looks like he died aged 82, uh, buried here. This investigator tells us what he found in this spot. Here are civilian bodies and military ones further along, he said. Over 20 have been examined here and will be sent for further investigation. It seems to be the hurried extension of the long-term cemetery nearby. Wreaths, coffins, candles... Some people knew who they were burying. Others, next to this invader's campsite, 
Likely not. Nadezhda said the Russians first hit the graveyard with an airstrike and then moved in. We tried not to go out because it was scary. Where they brought their special machines, they dug some trenches for their vehicles. We only heard how they were destroying the forest. When they left, I don't know if there was fighting or not. We just heard a lot of heavy trucks one night a week ago. We saw multiple refrigerated lorries leaving town, but were asked not to film the contents of this one. Part of where the history of Russia's brutal occupation will be written, and nothing can wash this site clean. President Volodymyr Zelensky today making comparisons to the apparent war crimes that we've seen on the outskirts of Kiev and the district of Bucha, saying that essentially where they uncover after the Russian occupation, they find this continued pattern. I should say what we saw at that mass burial site after talking to investigators uh, shows certainly signs of people who may have died during the Ukrainian defence of Izium or during the Russian occupation of it there. And Russia is ultimately to blame for launching this invasion. But I think it's fair to say investigators didn't know at the time of the exhuming today, necessarily when these bodies, people had died. They didn't know how. And so there's still a lot of investigation to be done about quite what happened to these 400 people. Staggering those, those scenes are. Jake? All right, Nick Payton Walsh in Ukraine. Thanks so much. Coming up next, gummies intended for adults, but why health officials need to stress these flavored edibles are a danger if they get in the wrong hands. Their warning is next. Stay with us. Our health lead now, a company that sold nicotine gummies claimed that they were for adult smokers to kick their tobacco habit, quote, on their own terms. But the gummies look like candy, and they come in flavors like blue raz and cherry bomb and pineapple, and to many critics seem a health crisis just waiting to happen. That's at least according to the U.S. Food and Drug Administration, which also says just one of those gummies, one, could be severely toxic if taken by a young kid. CNN medical correspondent Dr. Tara Narula joins us now. Dr. Narula, nicotine, obviously, in any form is bad for anyone, especially kids and teens. How much damage can be done uh, if a kid got hold of these gummies? And, and how common is it for kids to use products like these? Well, Jake, it doesn't take a lot of gummies to reach a toxic level. In fact, the FDA sent a warning letter recently to one company that was selling a 12-pack of gummies. Each gummy contained about a milligram of nicotine. And as you said, toxicity can happen in young kids anywhere between one and four milligrams. That's just a handful of gummies. And by toxicity, we're talking about things like cardiovascular arrest, respiratory failure, coma, and seizures. Unfortunately, as well, there's no real antidote for nicotine toxicity or poisoning. It's supportive care. And these symptoms can happen very quickly, within 30 minutes to one hour. So that's one issue. The second issue is obviously the addictive potential of nicotine, the concern for withdrawal. Is it going to be a gateway to other combustible tobacco use or other drugs? And then finally, the effects on the adolescent brain. The brain develops until the age of 25, and nicotine can cause learning problems, mood problems, attention problems, and impulse control issues down the road. So these are all extremely concerning and should be to parents. Now, as far as the prevalence, we really have no idea how prevalent this is in the country. There just isn't a lot of data. There was one study published in the journal Pediatrics recently where they surveyed ninth and 10th graders in Southern California, and about 10% reported use of e-cigarettes, about 3% reported use of these oral nicotine products. So probably a lot more prevalent than we think, Jake. So this product was on the shelves for months before the FDA took action. Why did it take so long? 
That's a great question that a lot of parents are asking, and I think a lot of kids, too. In fact, last night as I was discussing this with my six-year-old, she said, Mommy, isn't there a mayor that's supposed to watch over kids and protect them? Well, that mayor is the FDA. And a lot of parents are saying it seems like the FDA is just behind the eight ball consistently, very slow to take action, sporadic when they do, and with a very light hand. Now, the FDA was given the authority to regulate synthetic nicotine back in April. And over uh, 200 companies submitted about a million applications by May, which was the deadline. If those applications had not received that authorization by July, those companies could not legally market those products. And the FDA told us that essentially there are no FDA-approved nicotine gummies. So for parents who may be finding these and thinking, oh, well, it's on the market, it must be FDA-approved, that is just not the case. And while the FDA is saying they are planning to take swift action and to enforce this, I think a lot of this burden is going to fall upon families and parents to really have conversations with their kids where they educate, and healthcare practitioners as well. All right, Dr. Narula, thanks so much. She was pulled out of her family car, accused of breaking Iran's severe rules about women's dressing. Two hours after her arrest, she was dead. How did that happen? The growing questions for the Iranian regime, next. A young Iranian woman is dead after being held by Iran's morality police. That's according to Iranian media. The woman, Masa Amini, was traveling with her family to the capital of Tehran. Her family was stopped by a group of officers looking to enforce Iran's severe dress code for women, such as forcing women to wear a headscarf. The family says Masa was grabbed by police and forced inside a police vehicle for, quote, re-education. Her brother says two hours later, Masa was transported by police to the hospital. She was in a coma and she later died. Police told the family that she suffered a heart attack while in their custody. Joining us now to discuss is Iranian journalist and activist Masi Alinejad. Uh, Masi, it's good to see you again. I'm sorry it's under these circumstances. So Iranian State TV released video of Masa in the re-education center. The clip is two minutes long. About 20 seconds into it, the video cuts. And through a small crack in the window, you can see it goes from daylight to nighttime, meaning time has passed. Later in the clip, you see Masa talking to a woman who touches her clothes. Moments later, she collapses on the ground. Uh, do you trust this video, which the Iranian government has released? Look, not at all. They actually showed this on Iranian state television to say that we didn't beat uh, Masa. But today, Iranian women were frustrated and furious. They went in front of the same hospital that Masa was uh, there. And then again, the morality of the police was there, beaten up women, attacking women. But let me tell you something. Mahsa's family members, they risk their lives. And they tell uh, journalists outside Iran that Mahsa was beaten by the morality police. It is clear for all Iranians that he was murdered. The Interior Ministry and Tehran's prosecutors uh, say they're launching an investigation into her death. Um, do you have any faith that anyone will be held accountable for her death or that the investigation will be remotely credible? Like, this is ridiculous. They're actually asking another killer to do an investigation about another organization who killed Massa. This is not going to, you know, this is not going to achieve anything. We're not going to achieve anything through that. And that is why Iranian people took to the street. Look, it's not just that. Right now, uh, other women are in prison because of just in 21st century, they want to be their true self. In 21st century, Mahsa 
was murdered just because of a little bit of her hair. So, and uh, people of Iran actually asking that, how come that the Islamic Republic has a seat at the United Nation to, in a top women's body to monitor human rights globally? And the murder of our country, Ibrahim Raisi, is going to be welcomed very soon at the United Nation for General Assembly. And that is why Iranian people are furious and they don't have any hope that by making an official complaint, they're going to receive anything. So they took to the street. They were actually calling the Islamic Republic like ISIS. Can you believe that? Yeah. They know that they risk their lives. But people of Iran are fed up. They want freedom and dignity. Well, they deserve it. That's for sure. Over the past few months, you and other Iranian activists have been urging women to remove their veils, which could, of course, result in their arrest by the morality police Um, Tell us more about the morality police. And do you think they're trying to send a message uh, to other women through through what happened to Masa? Exactly. Exactly. That's the point, because the governments right now are, uh, you know, they they know that they cannot control women. Women are brave enough to practice their civil disobedience. Maybe Americans who are listening to me because CNN don't cover Iran, so mostly covering nuclear. Maybe they don't know even what I talk about when I say morality police. It means that if I go out like this with my hair like this, I will get beaten up. But forget about that. From the age of seven, if I don't cover my hair, I won't be able to get an education. I receive lashes if I show my hair. This is the reality of Iran, not the one that you see from some of, you know, the apologists or those who go to my beautiful country and they say that, look, let's talk about as a tourist, let's talk about how beautiful city. No, women are being treated like second class citizens. Do you see The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, the series in America? It's an entertainment. But this is the reality of our lives. But what breaks my heart that I see a lot of Western female politicians from European countries, they go to my beautiful country and they obey compulsory hijab laws. So they legitimize my oppressors, our government, to put more pressure on us. I want them now, all my sisters in America who say my body, my choice. We say the same, my body, my choice. But we go to jail. We get lashes. So support us and show your solidarity. Well, we're going to keep covering the story. Masi Alinajad, thank you so much. Really appreciate uh, your bringing Attention to this shining a light on on the way that Iran treats its women and girls. Thank you so much. Coming up next, Putin's invasion in Ukraine, his defiant tone and the uproar of resistance he's hearing at home in Russia. Stay with us. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, it's that time of year. The kids are back in school. Temperatures are starting to drop and politicians are doing the general election pivot, which might explain why some nominees suddenly have a case of short-term memory loss about wild statements they made just a few days ago. Plus, people from around the world now waiting more than 24 hours in line to pay their final respects to the Queen as London prepares to pull off the biggest security feat the world has ever seen for the royal funeral. And leading this hour, a haunting discovery in Ukraine's recaptured Northeast. Ukraine's defense minister says more than 400 unmarked graves have been discovered in the newly liberated city of Izium. President Volodymyr Zelensky claimed some of the bodies found at the site showed, quote, signs of torture. He posted graphic pictures of the graves on his social media accounts and wrote, quote, the whole world should see this, a world in which there should be no cruelty and terrorism, but all this is there and its name is Russia. And for the first time since Ukraine began its successful counteroffensive to reclaim Kharkiv, Russian President Vladimir Putin has publicly commented saying there's no need to change or adjust the Russian plan. 
as CNN's Matthew Chance reports for us now. Putin's confidence is curious considering his recent losses on the ground in Ukraine have led to a spike in criticism back home from some rather unexpected places. Ukraine's game, here set to dramatic music by their own troops, is increasingly Putin's loss. Russia's stunning military setbacks, stirring broad public criticism at home, with shocked military hardliners voicing anger. Hi, I'm Dmitry. Now dozens of elected local Russian politicians too, are signing an official petition, authored by this local councillor, demanding President Putin be impeached. Ordinary Russians have offered to pay his fines for speaking out, even to hide him, he told me, if the Kremlin tries to put him in jail. Well, obviously, Russian army is being destroyed right now. So we lose people, we lose weapons, and we lose our ability to defend. And that fact that the Russian army is suffering these setbacks, um, that is fueling anger, isn't it? Not just amongst liberal aspects of Russian society, but also amongst hardliners as well. They're furious. Yeah, uh, actually, pro-war activists, they are now really feel betrayed. And uh, that there is a point where both liberal uh, group of people and that pro-war group of people uh, can have the same goal. Unlike these early anti-war protesters in Moscow back in February, hardliners complain of Russia being too soft on Ukraine and sending woefully underprepared troops into battle. But it's the heavy price Russia is paying where there may be common cause. Hi, my name is Ksenia Turstrom. And why another Russian councillor has filed a second petition calling for Putin to resign. The Kremlin strongman, she told me, is depriving Russians of a future. Russians become poor, they are not welcome anywhere. Um, then there is less of uh, facilities, supplies. Russia doesn't really produce anything itself. And I don't know what future can be for the country which is isolated. Can you talk to me about what impact that lack of a future is having on people that you speak to? Ah, well, it's quite depressive now, very depressive uh, atmosphere in Russia and uh, the frustration, feeling fear, anger, shame. The Kremlin insists the mood of the people is still with the Russian president. But the growing criticism at home and abroad may at least threaten to take the swagger out of Putin's step. Indeed. And tonight, Jake, more than 70 deputies in areas across, you know, cities across Russia have now signed the petition calling for Vladimir Putin to resign. That's an extraordinarily high figure in a country that no longer tolerates public dissent, yet alone official dissent from elected officials. The five deputies that called for his impeachment, they've all been prosecuted and fined. Mm. Matthew Chance in London, thank you so much. Also on our World Lead today, President Biden has been meeting at the White House with the families of two Americans detained unfairly in Russia, Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan. The White House says the president is, quote, not going to let up in trying to bring them home. This comes as CNN reported earlier this week. 
that former New Mexico Governor Bill Richardson met with Russian leadership in Moscow. He works privately to free hostages and detainees abroad. The Biden White House has told Richardson to stop and to leave Russia. CNN Chief White House Correspondent Caitlin Collins joins us again live. Caitlin, why is President Biden finally meeting with these families now? And and what do we know about the status of any negotiations to bring them home? It's a good question, Jake, because this is a meeting that these families have pushed for for months. They have wanted to come to face to face with President Biden to talk about, obviously, how much they want this to be a priority for him and for his administration, bringing home their loved ones who are being held prisoner in Russia. And so they are finally getting these meetings separately today, we are told, with these families. They are really scheduled because the White House said one family was in town. They were scheduling that one and they wanted to make sure they met with both because you've seen situations play out in the last several months where uh, Brittany Griner's wife, Sherelle Griner, got a call from President Biden and then Paul Whelan's sister, Elizabeth, was saying that she also wanted a direct call from the president. So that is going to be the meetings that they are having today face to face with President Biden talking about how this is still a priority. But Jake, unfortunately, the White House says, you know, they're getting the meetings that they would like. They're not getting the news that they want because, of course, they want news about their release. They still have not moved the ball forward on that, unfortunately, even though the White House, as you know, has made a proposal for a prisoner swamp to Russia that they just really have not engaged on. We're also learning that the U.S. State Department is not ruling out the possibility of a meeting with Russia's top diplomat when the U.N. General Assembly convenes next week in New York. What are sources telling you? Yeah, this is the Russian foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. He has gotten a visa to come to the United Nations summit that's next week. Obviously, President Biden is going to be there on Wednesday. Also, Secretary of State Blinken and the White House right now and the State Department are not saying uh, that a meeting is not going to happen. They say there are no current plans for Blinken to meet with Lavrov, but they're not ruling it out. And the scenario that they laid out there, Jake, for why a meeting could potentially happen is they said if a senior Russian official meeting with a senior American official helps bring Brittany Griner and Paul Whelan home, then they would pursue that. Right now, it's not on the books, Jake, but Jake, and they have been in the same room, I should note, in recent months since the invasion started without actually speaking or meeting. Whether or not they do next week is going to be something that everyone's watching closely. All right, Caitlin Collins at the White House for us. Thank you so much for joining us now live to discuss Thomas Firestone. He's the former legal advisor to the U.S. Embassy in Moscow. Also with us, former deputy director of national intelligence, Beth Sanner. Uh, Thomas, let me start with you. The U.S. has been urging Russia to send a, a serious counter offer. Well, the U.S. has made an offer. Mm-hmm. Uh, this Bond villain arms trader uh, in exchange for the two. Uh, Russia hasn't really responded, and they haven't responded to this desire for a counteroffer. What's going on? Well, I think they're going to let it play out. I don't think they're going to do anything until Brittany Griner's appeal is heard and presumably denied, which I would put in early October. And I think that they're in no rush to have this happen. I think they're enjoying seeing the American politics play out. Boots has been sitting in jail for quite some time, and I think that they'll let it go on a little bit longer. Uh, Beth, what do you make of former governor and ambassador Bill Richardson uh, going to Moscow, meeting with Russian officials? The White House has had, let's just say, not so glowing things about Richardson being there. They say no one speaks for the U.S. government other than the U.S. government, and he should go home. Uh, Explain all this, because um, he did play a role, Richardson, in, in helping to get Trevor Reed released. He did. And it it kind of surprises me. And it it makes me think that maybe there is something more going on behind the scenes and they don't want Richardson to kind of muck it up by starting some kind of new negotiation or taking an angle that they haven't already been pursuing. So I think it's just, you know, too many cooks in the kitchen. Mm. Um, And that's why I'd leave it there. My my colleague Pamela Brown spoke uh, today uh, with Republican Senator Jim Risch of Idaho. Um, Let me play a little bit of what he told her. It's going to be difficult. There's no question about it. 
Uh, on the other hand, you still need to, uh, to deal with the families and, uh, and, and explain to them that uh, uh, you know, there, there are limited things that you can do when you have a, this kind of a situation going on. In most instances, uh, we do get the people back, but that's not always the case. I mean, he's, he seems to be urging skepticism, really. Like, please don't get your hopes up. Yeah, I think he's wisely managing expectations. He recognizes how hard this is. The Russians have a lot of leverage here. We don't have a lot. As I say, I think it seems like they're willing to let Victor Putin sit for a while. So we're in a very difficult situation. I think it's important to manage expectations. I think they will get them home, but it's not going to be quick or easy. When you say that they're, they're willing to let Victor Putin, that's the Bond villain arms trader that I talked about earlier. That, um do they care about their people as much as we care about ours? I think they care about them, but for different reasons. We don't really know why they want Boot back so badly. Maybe they're afraid he's going to talk about who he split the money with when he was doing all this arms dealing. Maybe they need him back to help with arms deals right now, given the war situation. We don't know. But they have let him sit there for quite some time. And so I think that... Uh, they have some leverage here. I should note that if you want to see more of Pamela Brown's interview with Senator uh, Risch, uh, you can see it on her show uh, this weekend. That's at 6 p.m. Uh, Eastern, only on CNN. Beth, the Indian Prime Minister uh, Modi told Putin today at a summit in Uzbekistan that Putin needs to end the war in Ukraine. He said now is not the time for war. This is after Putin publicly acknowledged Modi's apparent concerns about the war. Quote, I know your position regarding the conflict in Ukraine, your concerns, which you continuously Express And yesterday, Putin also divulged publicly that China's president, Xi, uh, had also concerns and questions about the war. Uh, is this significant, the fact that potential allies like Xi Jinping and, Pres- and uh, Prime Minister Modi are, are pushing back on his war? I think it really is. I think this has been a terrible week for President Putin, you know, starting with the Ukraine counteroffensive, going to Central Asia, where he should be you know, kind of the king of the roost. These are the former Soviet states, Uzbekistan, where they're hosting it. And here, you know, you're meeting with Xi, you're meeting with Modi, and people are either being very neutral, he didn't get anything out of President Xi, and or they're actually challenging. And you also had um, President Xi deciding to make his first stop outside of China, not directly to this meeting in Uzbekistan. He went to Kazakhstan. Hmm. And the Kazakhstan is the one Central Asia state, the biggest, the richest, and they actually stood up. The president sat there at a table next to Putin and said, you know what, I'm not recognizing Crimea still, and I'm not recognizing these new breakaway republics. So Putin is having a problem with his stature. And I think what we're seeing this week is really the diminishing power of President Putin play out in living color. All right, Thomas and Beth, thank you so much for your expertise. Have a great weekend to both of you. Coming up, a look at the staggering numbers needed to pull off the world's biggest security challenge, the Queen's funeral. Then, why is California's Democratic governor putting up billboards in a bunch of red states? We'll explain. Stay with us. In our world lead, you are looking at live pictures from London. London, Hundreds of thousands of Britons and others are waiting more than 24 hours in line for their chance to say a good final goodbye to Queen Elizabeth II. Their line is reaching nearly five miles long earlier today. It's obviously forcing authorities to briefly close it off and take extreme measures. The U.K. government has even set up a live tracker that displays the, the current length of the line and the endpoint to try and make the queue as efficient as possible. No one's been given special treatment in this line. Even British football superstar... 
David Beckham was spotted in the queue, adding some posh spice to the long wait. And of course, when I say football, I mean soccer. Authorities say hundreds of police officers and marshals are on hand to maintain order and to make sure impatient mourners do not attempt to jump the line. Monday's royal funeral presents one of the biggest security challenges the world has ever faced. Hundreds of leaders from across the globe expected to attend to pay their respects to the late Queen. CNN's Bianca Nobila reports now on the unprecedented and challenging security situation facing British authorities. These mourners are among two million expected to gather in London ahead of the Queen's funeral. For the capital's authorities, balancing ceremony and safety is their toughest test yet. Thousands of officers are being deployed each day. 1,000 personnel alone will guard the line to Westminster Hall, where the Queen's coffin is lying in state. Air traffic above London was suspended while the cortege made its journey there. 1,500 soldiers on hand to help with crowd control. With such large numbers comes high risk. In the UK, our national threat level is substantial. That means a terrorist attack is likely. We know that terrorists are attracted to crowds and we're about to generate one of the largest crowds that we we could possibly uh, ever generate in this country. The pinnacle will, of course, be Monday's state funeral, which police say will be the largest in British history. This is the single largest protection operation that the Met Police has ever undertaken. There is nothing that could probably possibly compare to not just what's gone on already, but what will occur on Monday at the state funeral. There's hundreds of dignitaries to consider, from the King of Spain to France's President Emmanuel Macron. They've been urged to limit the size of their entourages, but Downing Street may make exceptions for certain guests, one of the most high-profile being President Biden. There's no doubt about it that uh, the Americans are very demanding customers in terms of security. And we recognise where each other's boundaries are in terms of what can be asked for and what can be delivered. Planning for protests is also inevitable. If they don't break the law, it's regrettable, but it needs to be allowed to take place. I've met the Queen on many different occasions in many different settings. And I, for one, am certain that she would be here today advocating for people's rights. The crowds are still coming, but Britain has been preparing for this for many years to ensure Her Majesty's final send-off goes as smoothly as possible. World leaders have already started to descend on the capital. The Prime Ministers of New Zealand and Australia are both already in London. Monday will present an unusual opportunity, a chance for leaders to reflect on the contribution of the late monarch and put politics aside. That before politics becomes very much the focus again and diplomatic dialogue continues at the UNGA in New York next week, Jake. All right, Bianca Nobilo, thank you so much for that report. When you win your primary but then scrub your campaign website to try to appeal to independent voters who might have hated everything you said just a few days before... The general election shuffle playing out in a bunch of battleground states. We're going to take a look at one of them next. In our politics lead, shifting with the political winds, Arizona Republican Blake Masters won the support of Trump and the far right in his Senate primary by supporting Trump's lies in the 2020 election and tacking hard right. Having secured the nomination, Masters is now trying the old Etch-A-Sketch changing his position, or at least hiding them, on many of the most hotly debated issues 
seeking to try to reach uh, independent voters who make up a third of voters in Arizona who determine elections, as well as moderate Republicans in Arizona. But as CNN's Kyung Lab reports for us now, Democrats are now using Masters' own words against him. Please join me in welcoming Arizona Republican Senate nominee Blake Masters pledges he's paving a path for the new political right. Who's ready to beat Mark Kelly? But first, Masters needs Arizona voters like John Kane to get behind him. If he doesn't turn his head around, okay, he's going to lose the election. Are you concerned about him? Absolutely. He runs an ad on TV, and then at the end it says, independent for Arizona. I said, what? It's the general election pivot, trying to appeal to independents who make up roughly a third of registered voters in Arizona. They've made a whole party out of just dividing people. In this speech, Masters focuses on the border, inflation, and crime. Republicans have a plan to make our families safe again, to make this country prosperous again, and to make everybody free again. Does that sound extreme to you? But the edgy rhetoric and imagery that marked his primary was missing. This is designed to kill people. The primary candidate who doubted the 2020 election results. I think Trump won in 2020. And downplayed the January 6th insurrection. It wasn't a coup. It wasn't an insurrection. Uh, This was trespassing. Didn't mention Donald Trump in this room. I'm pro-life and I'm proud to be pro-life. I will never run away from that. But he has altered his campaign website, scrubbing strict anti-abortion language, and he's backed off from this primary position. Maybe we should privatize Social Security, right? Private retirement accounts, get the government out of it. To this in the general election. Don't want to privatize it. They, um, you know, that was probably a misstatement by me. I'm saying the same stuff I said in the primary, right? The Democrats in charge have failed. They've delivered nothing but chaos and pain. We're pushing back. We've got a beautiful America first agenda. Uh, I was proud to campaign on that for more than a year, and that's exactly what I'm campaigning on now. So you're saying the message is exactly the same as it was before the primary? Cast and answered. The Senate Leadership Fund, the super PAC to help elect Republicans, canceled $8 million in planned ad spending to boost Masters this month. Blake Masters, too dangerous for Arizona. At the same time as incumbent Democratic Senator Mark Kelly and allies are pouring millions into ads, using Masters' words against him. We can't trust Blake Masters with our retirement. Your incredible Senator Mark Kelly! Kelly, one of the Senate's most endangered incumbents, has 20 times the amount of cash on hand compared to Masters and vows to continue calling out the contrast between the candidates. Well, I think it's important that Arizonans know what each of us stand for, and I think that's pretty clear. I think all elections are about choices, you know, you know, and and they're, they're pretty obvious choices. Now, this week, we got a little more clarity from Masters about his exact position, the specifics on abortion. Uh, He says that he will back Senator Graham's uh, 15-week abortion restriction. Now, in the primary, when he was running in the primary, he said that he backed a federal personhood law. And he also wrote on his website, quote, always work to protect life from conception. Jake? All right, Kyung Law, thanks so much. Is the sun about to set on Nancy Pelosi's days as House Speaker? The growing calls for her to step aside from a surprising source. Stay with us. 
In our politics lead, President Biden blasting Republican governors such as Florida's Ron DeSantis and Texas's Greg Abbott, accusing them of using undocumented migrants as human political props for transporting them on buses and planes and then leaving these migrants in supposed liberal enclaves such as Martha's Vineyard in Massachusetts. Instead of working with us on solutions, Republicans are playing politics with human beings, using them as props. What they're doing is simply wrong. It's un-American. It's reckless. Abby, let me start with you. Those are some pretty strong words from the president. Now, Republicans would argue uh, they are fed up with an immigration crisis, a border crisis that the Biden administration doesn't do enough, uh, which also has tragedies. And this is the only way to get the attention of the administration. That's their argument. But what do you think of it all? Well, I mean, it's a political stunt and a pretty transparent one. But it's also interesting to me that Democrats could be really leaning into this contrast even more. Mm -hmm. The Democratic Party's argument to voters is that we we can welcome in asylum seekers. Not only can we as a country, but we should. And so the message from Biden should not only be the part about Ron DeSantis and whatever it is that he is describing it as a cynical ploy, but where's the other part about whether or not these cities like New York, Washington, Boston, Chicago can and should have the capacity to take in these individuals who are lawfully seeking asylum in this country. And so there is a little bit of an imbalance here in some of the messaging from the Democrats, but it's a base play for the Republicans. I think Democrats could probably do a little bit more to make that contrast clear. Abby is absolutely right. Let's see if Democrats can be disciplined enough uh, to stay cohesive, right? We often see that Republicans win the immigration argument because Democrats abandon the values that they say that they have on this issue. We actually have the capacity in this country to to do quite a lot. And I think that uh, we saw in the wake of the uh, argument over Title 42, the Trump era immigration policy or COVID policy under the guise of COVID, Democrats sort of one by one back away from um, what they and what they initially said was characterizing it as a white supremacist policy. So let's see, now that immigration is at the fore, Republicans want to make it the issue. Let's see if Democrats have the spine uh, to stick to their so-called values. Congresswoman Love, I want you to take a listen to California Governor Gavin Newsom, who, uh, as is his want, uh, is slamming Florida's uh, Ron DeSantis uh, for the treatment of migrants. He calls it monstrous. Take a listen to this. What uh, Ron DeSantis is doing is a disgrace. It's almost monstrous. He's got kids. I have kids. You saw those young girls with backpacks, no older than his children, my children, being used as political pawns, and now he's using it to fundraise, to raise money. It's disgraceful. He's referring to images such as these uh, uh, that we've seen, um, you know, as these immigrants, these migrants have arrived in Martha's Vineyard and elsewhere. you're a Republican. Is this a good way, do you think, for Republicans to highlight the issue of the border? It's really interesting because I agree with Abby. I agree. <laughs> I just, I, I, this is just politically polarizing. It does, it's not helping us work together on immigration. The administration is not helping us work together on immigration. This is something that obviously is incredibly important to me as a daughter of Haitian immigrants. I I just cannot. I, I look at what happened with Haitians that were left under a bridge for weeks on end mm. under conditions that were horrible. Why aren't we? Wh- I mean, this is just the blame game to distract from what we should be doing. What about ownership? 
on the Republican side and Democrat side. I want to see somebody say, I want to own this problem. I want to do something to fix this problem. But again, here we are as Americans blaming the other party without knowing all of the information. I'm sorry, but the administration and Newsom, he's got his own problems he needs to deal with in, in California. Yeah. But I do think we have to take a step back here. And the fact that these people were lied to and put on an airplane and sent to Martha's Vineyard where they didn't know, as some have said, they felt they felt like they were being kidnapped. I mean, there was, it is shocking that in 2022, an American governor, I don't care what party you're from, would treat human beings that way. And as we reported on CNN earlier today, it also has a very troubling history, a reminiscence of the 1962, what they called reverse freedom rides, where black families were put on buses from the South to the Northeast with the idea of humiliating both the African-Americans and the, the white Northerners for their, their positions. And I just think if you are trying to be a governor of a state or the president of our country, you cannot resort to this kind of gamesmanship to make your point. Period. Can I just make a crass economic uh, point, which is one of the reasons why the Chamber of Commerce historically has supported immigration reform uh, is because of needs uh, of the labor market. And we're in a huge labor shortage right now. I mean, try going to a restaurant uh, and getting your meal within an hour. I mean, there are, there are, we have a shortage of workers. Um, so I, I wonder if that's an argument yeah, I mean, the Bidens can be making too. I think this is, this is to the point that Eva and I were talking about. Uh, there is an, an argument to be made that this idea that we are out of room in this country is just from a factual perspective, not true. There, there is room, there are jobs, uh, there are opportunities. And uh, the Biden administration ran on the premise of making the, this country's immigration system more humane and more rational. But part of that is about this idea that tr- we're treating immigration at, uh, immigration in and of itself as a crisis when, in fact, it we have the capacity in this country, just from a factual perspective, the uh, unemployment rate being as low as it is and the search for, um, for workers being such a drag on this economy. Yeah, I, I do want to switch to one uh, other topic, which is so interesting. Increasingly, we're hearing Democrats off the record or on background <laughs> saying it's time for House Speaker Nancy Pelosi to step aside. Uh, CNN spoke with more than two dozen Democrats in the House. The consensus from which was Pelosi should not continue uh, as leader if the party loses its majority in November, which is expected. Um, well, let me start with you, because it's, t- it's toughest <laughs> for you. Yeah. Um, is it time for a new generation of leadership in the House? I think we will get to that question when, you know, we get to the uh, other side. Pivoting. Yeah, I am pivoting. pivoting. I am pivoting. Look, here's what I will say. I, um, I give uh, Pelosi a lot of credit for the fact that she actually has encouraged younger generations of people by creating more positions in leadership, so that we would have a pipeline. I do hope that if she chooses not to run, that those folks are the ones who have the opportunity to step up. But look at how the the Democratic establishment treated their freshman leader, right? When Mondaire Jones, the whole redistricting episode, they didn't rally around to keep him. I think the Democrats have a real issue with passing the baton. Let me get the former congresswoman the last word. What do you think? I actually was able to sit on the floor with my former colleagues, my former friends from the Congressional Black Caucus in their areas going back and forth. And I think they are looking for new leadership. There isn't anyone that has this idea that there will be legislation that will be passed bipartisan. 
I mean, they honestly believe that any legislation that's going to be passed is going to be completely party line. There is no hope at all that there's going to be bipartisan effort. And so I think there there is this sentiment of new leadership, uh, something that something that'll give the Democrat Party a little bit more umph out in the general public, because Nancy Pelosi has been around for a long time, even though she has a lot of influence and a lot of power within the within yeah. Congress. Outside of that, they need a little bit more. Oomph. Oh. We, we got oh. plenty. We got plenty. Thanks, we got thanks plenty. one and all. Appreciate it. And of course, if you did not get enough Abby Phillip just now, <laughs> there's a place you can go to get more. Uh, look for Abby Phillip on her show Inside Politics Sunday. It's at 8 a.m. Eastern and again at 11 a.m. only here on CNN on Sunday. Coming up, revealing a dark hidden history, what some American companies did to placate the Nazis during World War II. Part of a new documentary from Ken Burns and Lynn Novak, with whom we will speak next. Stay with us. And our pop culture lead shining a new light on one of the darkest chapters of American history. A new PBS documentary premiering Sunday examines America's response and lack thereof during the Holocaust, where six million Jews were murdered by the Nazi German regime. Here's a little preview. We tell ourselves stories as a nation. One of the stories we tell ourselves is that we're a land of immigrants. But in moments of crisis, it becomes very hard for us to live up to those stories. The Holocaust was beyond belief. People just disappeared. The primary goal was to get to the United States. But the golden door was not wide open. We are challenged as Americans to think about what we would have done what we could have done, what we should have done. The co-directors of the U.S. and the Holocaust, Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, join me now, and it's an honor. I'm a huge fan of both of you. Uh, Ken, to you first, what are the main points you want people to take away from this documentary? I, I think it's a very basic, simple one, that at the moment when escape was still possible for hundreds of thousands of refugees from Europe, the United States of America, the land of immigrants, of at least the idea of that, uh, did not make it easy for them to come in. We did let in 225,000 people, more than any other sovereign nation. But, Jake, we could have let in five times that many. And we didn't because of rampant anti-Semitism, lack of political will, uh, racism, xenophobia, uh, draconian immigration laws that put quotas uh, that made it very, very hard and a State Department that kept changing the rules and, uh, you know, raising the bar and 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 moving the goalposts. And Lynn, uh, this documentary comes on a weekend where Venezuelan refugees fleeing the horrific conditions in Marxist uh, Venezuela under the Maduro government uh, are being used uh, for political messaging uh, by Republican governors. Um, and I'm wondering how resonant you think that is and, and how much when you're watching this play out in real time, yeah. you're thinking about the work in this documentary about Jewish refugees. Well, you know, this latest news is sort of in a continuum of uh, disturbing things that we're seeing all around us in the way that we think about immigrants and refugees and who should be allowed to come here and who shouldn't and whether we have a policy that reflects our values. And one of the things we tried to show in this film is that these values are not settled for this country. So we have the Statue of Liberty, which is 
you know, a beacon of welcome and has been seen that way for generations. And yet we also have the impulse to keep people out. And both of those things are part of who we are. And that all came to sort of a tragic uh, outcome during the 30s when so many refugees were trying to flee Hitler. So this is not a new story. This is a very old story. And I think, you know, working on this project helped us to gain some perspective on things that are happening around us right now. And Ken, right now there appears to be a surge of the far right in European politics, a party founded by ultra-nationalist extremists and neo-Nazis is gaining popularity in Sweden. Italy has elections next week. A party there founded off the country's neo-fascist movement is currently leaving, leading in the polls. Uh, what's your take on what we're seeing in Europe? Well, I, I think it's very worrisome. I mean, one of the threads that runs through our story about the Holocaust, and we're not equating what's going on today at all with the Holocaust. This is the nadir of human behavior, uh, as one of our survivors says in the film. But we are saying that by studying the past, we can learn a little bit about where we are now. And one of the through lines of American history is, of course, authoritarianism and the easy way in which people are drawn to the supposedly easy answers that authoritarianism uh, promises. And one of the aspects of it is is sort of an us against them mentality, the othering of people and immigrants are often, often the, the number one scapegoats in this regard. I often wonder what the band of brothers uh, would make of all of the people that are fans of Nazis here in the United States, given all the sacrifice they made uh, to fight them. Uh, and Lynn, we're seeing this far-right extremism in American politics. Earlier this month, a woman spoke at a Trump rally in Pennsylvania pleading for justice for her nephew, who is a convicted January 6th rioter who admired Adolf Hitler. You see him here in the, mm. with his Hitler mustache. A judge kept this defendant in jail because the judge appointed by Trump was so worried that his neo-Nazi rhetoric would turn into violence. And then just yesterday, that man in the Camp Auschwitz sweatshirt during the Capitol insurrection was sentenced to 75 days in jail. Meanwhile, Pennsylvania Republican nominee for governor, Doug Mastriano, uh, who is close friends with the founder of Gab, which regularly uh, is a site for neo-Nazi hate. Uh, Mastriano attacked his rival, a Jewish Democratic Attorney General, Josh Shapiro, essentially because Shapiro went to a Jewish private school. He used words like elite and privileged, saying that Shapiro has disdain for regular Americans. How do you make sense of all this anti-Semitism in American politics, given what America did to stop it in World War II. This is a very disturbing times we're living in, and anti-Semitism is not new. It's been around for hundreds of years, and we're seeing a resurgence of overt threats and violence, as the Anti-Defamation League says, unprecedented on a scale that we're not, we've never seen. And, you know, I'm not uh, qualified to explain why this is happening, but we can definitely see that it is happening, and that... Um, there's kind of a fear-mongering and hate speech that was on the far fringe for most of my adult life that I can recall, now really being mainstreamed and rhetoric being used by mainstream political figures in a way that, and, and people saying things that sort of weren't said before uh, and keep on saying it. And the more you say something, the more people believe it. Yeah. And this sort of, the you know, the, the propaganda and the lies, it's not just directed against Jewish people, it's also directed against immigrants people of color, marginalized people of different kinds. This is the, there's a, a whole wide spectrum of bigotry and prejudice that is definitely in a resurgent mode right now. And I should notice, just in the, in the area of transparency, that I went to the same school as the Attorney General Josh Shapiro, a Jewish day school, which was not elite um, by, by many senses, although it certainly was a private parochial school. And um, 
at that school, I learned so much about the Holocaust. Uh, it, it, it's an important part of the Jewish experience. Um, but I learned so much, Ken, uh, from your documentary, so much I did not know. Uh, and one of the things that was so shocking was about how some American companies like Woolworths and the Associated Press mollified Nazis. They fired their Jewish employees in Germany uh, or kept business in Germany despite the atrocities happening in Europe, including uh, all of the Hollywood studios with the exception of Warner Brothers. Um, it is really something to see, and I kind of feel like we see it today with how we mollify China. Yeah, I know. You know, Mark Twain said history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And why we study the past, why Lynn and I do these films is because we are trying to find a place around which you can have a civil discourse about some of these very concerning things. Yes, sometimes the almighty dollar trumped one's own conscience and you would have uh, people making concessions to the Germans because they did not want to lose that valuable market. You had the out and out uh, anti-Semite Henry Ford choosing to accept a German contract over a British one. It's, it's a very disturbing thing and we have to remember that that we see these through lines in history that continually recur and reoccur these echoes and our only guard against them is the investigation of the past that might provide us with a a, a kind of leadership it's the best teacher i know deborah lipstadt the holocaust historian in the film says the way to stop a genocide is before it starts and the way to save a democracy is before it's lost. And so I think we need to study the aspects of our past to see the ways in which these trends, as Lynn is suggesting, recur and reoccur with sometimes marginalized frequency, sometimes with mainstream frequency as they are now and as they were in the 1930s, which prevented us, most important, from saving hundreds and hundreds of thousands of refugees, mostly Jewish, from fleeing Nazi horror. That's the thing we can't forget. Ken Burns and Lynn Novick, uh, an amazing feat. Congratulations. It's, it's uh, great journalism, great storytelling, um, and very difficult to hear lessons about the United States. Congratulations again. You can watch the first episode of The U.S. and the Holocaust this Sunday at 8 p.m. Eastern. Check your local PBS station. We'll be right back. In our pop culture lead now, Jeopardy! host Ken Jennings is facing some backlash for allowing one contestant to change his answer. Take a listen. Luigi. Who's Constant? Say again. Who's, uh, sorry, Constable. Who's Constable? Constable is correct, yes. The issue is that later in the same show, another contestant, a woman, tried correcting her answer but got a different response from Jennings. Harriet. Who was Angela Le Guin? Uh, no. Ursula Le Guin. Luigi or Winston? Luigi. Who's Ursula Le Guin? Yes. Harriet, you remembered that her name was Ursula, but I'm afraid I'd already begun ruling against you when you corrected yourself. Mm. According to Jeopardy's rules, contestants can change their responses so long as neither the host nor the judges have made a ruling. My guest on Sunday on State of the Union, U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who will preview the United Nations General Assembly next week. Plus, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, Republican Senator Mike Rounds of South Dakota. That's Sunday at 9 a.m. and noon Eastern. Then Sunday night, my CNN special American coup, the January 6th investigation. That's Sunday night at 9 p.m. Eastern. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I will see you on Sunday morning. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. 
And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.